Dissolving Newspaper, Fermenting Leaves by Kik Araki Kawaguchi Read by Madeline Lambert To persuade her cricket to eat, Margaret Morey cooked every recipe she had learned as a teenager when working for her family's restaurant. As the rest of the Morey family barrack slept, Margaret slipped into the camp's mess hall and raided its pantries. She minced pork, garlic, ginger, green onion. She arranged dumplings in a pan and ladled hot oil over them until the dough of their skins became tan and chewy. She boiled fistfuls of buckwheat noodles, plunged them into icy baths, and spun the strands into shallow cups. She caramelized sweet onions and doused meatballs of beef tongue and rice wine and vinegar. She uncloaked the pits of umeboshi plums and rolled the sweet puckered flesh into sheets of salted and dried seaweed. Everything she held out to her cricket and begged him to eat. But he stared at her dishes impassively, stroked the ends of his antennae, and turned his face away from hers in disappointment. On the mornings, Margaret did not have time to be artful with the presentation of her meals. Her cricket was known to wiggle his mandibles in disgust or to emit a sharp, pompous click from the tooth comb tucked beneath his wings. At the camp library, there was a single text containing a passage about the lives of crickets. That text was entitled World of Insects, Grasshoppers, and Katydids, and was written by the famed Japanese orthopterologist Yoshikani Araki. And if any Gila River resident had cared to check its record, they would have seen it had been signed out by an M. Mori, a total of 28 times. Based upon her research, Margaret assembled wood crates of dissolving newspaper, fermenting leaves, ripe pods of fungi, and delivered them to the burrow of her cricket. Her cricket approached a decomposing leaf, sniffed at it, bristled, and leapt away. From her oldest uncle, Margaret learned that it was common practice for crickets to cannibalize the wounded. On one occasion, she tore the hind legs from a desert locust, roasted them over a hot coal, and presented them to her cricket, who instantly recoiled, let loose a series of heated chirps, and would not appear to her for several days afterward. Though her arms became branded by inadvertent flares of hot grease and steam, though her olfactory nerves grew tired and raw, though her eyes clouded from lack of sleep, Margaret continued to dribble hot oil onto chicken skin until it curled into a sail of sweetened fat, Margaret steamed custards of tofu, ponzu, green onion, and whipped eggs in teacups. Her hands clapped pots of white rice into steaming wedges and garnished their peaks with tart strips of shoga. And if her rice balls were finished before the sun had risen, she transferred them to an open fire, toasted them, lowered them into a ceramic bowl, and splashed over them a broth made from kombu and flakes of bonito dashi. Still, Margaret Morey's cricket would not eat. You must eat, she insisted, but her cricket merely balked his wings at her, pronounced a fierce staccato snort. If you will not eat what I cook for you, then what will you eat, she asked. Her cricket said, there is just one thing I can eat. Yes, anything, Margaret pleaded. I will make whatever you wish. Her cricket said, when you lie down to sleep tonight, place me beside your left ear. We will find each other in your dreams, and I will be able to find a meal there. That night when Margaret went down upon her bedroll, she did as her cricket had instructed. 
She placed her cricket in a little nest of hair beside her left ear and was quickly overtaken by the blackness of sleep. During the first months inside the fences of the Gila Relocation Center, Margaret's dreams would transport her back to her family's home in Venice, California. But in the past two years, all Margaret's dreams had been pulled as though by a tether back to Gila. On that occasion, when she came into awareness, she found herself sitting in the darkness of the Mori family barracks. Then she saw her cricket had assumed the form of a man. She was positive this man was her cricket because his voice had grown louder, but had not altered. He was vaguely humming a song and cleaning his teeth with a wooden splinter. As a man, her cricket was slightly reminiscent of the local minister from the Venice Methodist Church, the Reverend June Shozaburu. He was lean and immaculate, clothing unblemished, hair and fingers well manicured, and something of his smile seemed slightly misaligned, as though his mouth was overly crowded with teeth. Now that you are here, I will cook you any food you desire, Margaret told him. We aren't bound to what I can steal from the canteen in the mess hall anymore. I can find you the most expensive, most marbled cuts of meat. Matsutake mushrooms, magnificent quail eggs, or perhaps you are thirsty. Here you can drink a dozen foaming beers. Her cricket man said, I have not come here to eat anything you can cook. The only thing I will eat is your mother. My mother? Margaret exclaimed. Do not be frightened, Margaret, her cricket man said. No harm will come to your actual mother. I only want to eat the mother of this world, the mother of this dream. That is all I want. But my mother, I do not think I could allow such a desecration of my family, even if it is only a dream. Margaret, since pledging myself to you, there has only been starvation. Many times I thought surely today will be the morning I die from hunger. But I always reserved faith that one day you would find a way to feed me the thing I needed. Margaret began to wonder if she was behaving ridiculously. She looked down at her dream mother. Who was this woman actually? What was this woman but a wisp of imagination? What was the value of this shadow passing through the darkness of her nights? Well, I suppose if I don't have to watch, it could be all right, Margaret said. I suppose she doesn't have actual feelings. She isn't my flesh and blood mother, after all. I knew you would be the one to save me, her cricket man said. I knew I could count on you to understand. Then he scooped Margaret's dream mother up in a blanket and carried her behind one of the barracks partitions. Margaret could hear the two of them struggling. She had the urge to go to them, to mediate the horror of this attack in some way, but her legs felt stricken with paralysis. Margaret, she could hear her mother screaming. I can't get him off of me. Stop him. The next morning, eating breakfast shoulder to shoulder with the members of her family, Margaret felt tormented with guilt. She feigned sickness and went back to their barrack to lie down. It went on in this way for weeks. Every evening, Margaret would place her cricket beside her left ear, and every night her cricket would transform into a man and ask to devour another member of the Mori family. On the morning that followed, Margaret would be overtaken by guilt and avoid meals, chores, conversation with her family. 
It wasn't only guilt and exhaustion that worried her. Margaret was having additional troubles during her waking hours. She found she sometimes had difficulty recalling the names of her cousins and siblings. She found herself having to relearn their habits, sensitivities, alliances, when they preferred to rise and sleep, which jokes might hurt them, and which might make them laugh, which friends they loved or despised in secret. On her worst days, she had difficulty recognizing her family as though their faces, gestures, voices had metamorphosed into something foreign during the night. As this became a regular occurrence, Margaret felt compelled to confront her cricket. Count all the members of your family, the cricket told her, and strike me dead if even one of them is missing from Gila River. Of course they haven't gone, Margaret said, but it's not the point. I'm having trouble remembering them. Yesterday, I tried to call out to Tetsuo, but I'd forgotten what to call him. I'd forgotten my own brother's name. Your brother is a rotten brat, anyway, the cricket said. I ate him mostly out of sympathy. In truth, his flesh tasted of ash and rat shit. Margaret was shocked. Save your sympathy, then, she told her cricket man. I'll never let you touch another person in my family again. If you no longer want me to eat your dream family, then perhaps you will let me nibble on your toes. I cannot let you do that, Margaret said. Margaret, you are being ridiculous. They are only your dream toes. I will count them beside you when you awaken every morning. They will be right where you left them. It was soon after that Margaret found she had trouble walking. When family members noticed her limp, she had to make up an excuse about tripping off the steps of the canteen's loading dock and spraining her ankle. Margaret had always been expert in needlepoint, but discovered her hands needed to be retaught every elementary rhythm and motion. In the morning, she counted all her digits and toes beside the cricket. Everything was accounted for, but it was as though no blood or oxygen had reached them during the night. Those parts of her she dreamed he'd feasted upon were all shot through with tingles and dull aches. You haven't been eating my dreams at all, she said to the cricket one evening. Never once have I deceived you, Margaret Morey, he said. Tally all your fingers, toes, and limbs. Count all the members of your family. Everything remains here in this room. This is not the room you have been stealing from, Margaret said. When you first came to me, the cricket said, I told you there would be consequences for our friendship. The union between a woman and her cricket is not one that can be sustained through the typical channels. I knew something of my life would change, Margaret said. I asked for you to change it, but I did not say I was surrendering my family or my body. Never have I asked you to betray your blood family, Margaret. Never have I asked for one ounce of physical flesh or blood. Just because what you take cannot be tied to a specific weight does not mean you've taken nothing. It does not mean you have permission to measure its value to me. The cricket screamed back at her. What I need to survive you create every night in abundance. What would you have me do? Would you have me starve, Margaret? I would have the both of us try to survive another way, she said.
The cricket grew very still. Yes, he said. What you say is right, Margaret. You are right, and you've always treated me with sweetness and understanding. Tonight will be the last night I visit your dreams. I will not eat from your dream body, nor will I eat from your dream family. But allow me to visit you one world over, so that I might say goodbye to you as a man. That night, when the cricket man came to her, he said, Margaret, you have fed me all I have asked for, and you have suffered incalculable losses because of it. There can be no small repayment for a gift as that. The cricket man ran his fingers down the surface of the wall. When he opened his hand, he was shaking out a fist of sawdust. Tonight, he said, I will eat this barrack that imprisons you. I will chew back its planks of wood. I will chew back the fences of barbed wire. I will eat the rifles and the shells of the tower guards. I will eat the sand and the heat and the miles between here and the western coast. Margaret said to the cricket man, I won't pretend a thing more with you. This is just the dream of one woman. The same world will be rebuilt the moment I awaken. No, Margaret. The cricket man said, Not for you. Not this time. When you awaken, Gila River will be gone, and you will be back in California, back in your Venice home, with the dank, sweet sea air, and the wet thud of your family's plum tree dropping its black sugar in the night. Margaret tried to rise, but found in her dream that she had no feet or legs. She looked up at her cricket man from the freezing barrack floor. Margaret, the cricket man said, you knew at the moment of friendship between a beautiful woman and a cricket, there is always a firm possibility for magic. And then the cricket man rose, gripped the rafters, and began to tear down the planks of the Mori family barrack. You're listening to Fiction Transmission, a project of Fiction Collective 2. FC2 is a nonprofit author-run publisher of innovative fiction, a literary alternative since 1974. Every week we bring you a story and a conversation. You just heard Dissolving Newspaper, Fermenting Leaves by Kik Araki Kawaguchi from the book of Kane and Margaret, published by FC2 in 2020. Next, Keek is joined by writer Joanna Rocco, chair of the FC2 editorial board, for a conversation across the cosmic distance of isolation. Because we're meeting in the placeless place of Zoom and it's it's flat and creepy, I was thinking maybe we could imagine that we were somewhere together having this conversation. Um, I was thinking of a fern break by the ocean. I don't know if there are fern breaks by, by the ocean, like fiddleheads and then ferns and then the ocean. But is there any place that you would want to imagine us being when we're talking? Yeah, I um that sounds great and I can just I can walk there right now. I'm just like 
walking past the, this hill and uh, <laughs> I'll meet you. I'll meet you. I'm waving. I'm, ar- I'm waving. I'm already down in the ferns and they're like brushing oh, yeah. my, my elbows. Oh um, yeah. There you are. Okay. Uh, hi. <laughs> um, oh yeah, this is, this is better. I like this better that we're in the ferns and I can hear the ocean. Um, I wanted to begin at the beginning of your story um, because the first line is so amazing and surprising um, to persuade her cricket to eat. Margaret Morey cooked every recipe she'd learned as a teenager when working for her family's restaurant. And there's something about persuade. I mean, one, she has a cricket, what's going on, but she's persuading her cricket to eat, which is really different from feeding a cricket. Like, you know, you often think of to feed an animal or, um, or forcing her cricket to eat because persuasion, um, involves reasoning like two reasoning beings and so I think just from the very beginning we have the surprise of the cricket and then the named human but also this like positing of an equality between them and it feels really important that the action involves food and I I was thinking um, about the way that um, the the recipes the food that she's making connects to the outside world um, beyond the barracks and beyond the camp. It connects to her, um, her old life, but then the food that she's actually making comes from, um, the mess hall itself and the cricket rejects it. Absolutely. And then also rejects, um, the, uh, the cricket food that she learns about in the book, the world of insects. Um, and there's something that makes sense about that to me, that the cricket would reject the food, of the barracks or the food of the camps. And I was thinking about um, like all those food prohibitions from fairy tale and myth. Like if you eat food in the land of fairy or if you eat food in the land of the dead, you'll never return. You'll be stuck there forever. And, um, And the cricket seems to be this, I don't know, sort of trickster figure that promises the the possibility of escape or illusory escape. And so I don't know, I was just wondering if um, food lore and food taboo and like ritualized eating or ritualized fasting, if any of those things were in your head when you were writing. Um, Well, just about like the first sentence, like just having um, like the characters and there being a problem embedded in the first sentence. Like, I think that's probably just you know, um, that's probably just almost me not knowing what the story was going to be yet, you know, or like not quite even knowing who the characters were going to be yet. And, um, and so whenever I notice this about my writing is like, whenever I feel that way, the, the problem of the story shows up right away. (laughs) Like the problem shows up very quickly. Um, so I think that's why, I think that's why that sentence is written that way, but, um, like, I'm not sure if you'll agree with me on this, but like something that I feel food and literature share is that they're transportive, um, like a, like a bite of food, you know, like literature can teleport you through, um, time and space. And, um, and so, yeah, I think given the time, you know, it's, um, it's World War II. A lot of things are rationed. Uh, meat was really tightly rationed, especially in these um, in these internment camps. Um, I think the idea was like, yeah, just that 
the um, promise of these kinds of foods or the care being taken with these kinds of foods was like this transportive uh, experience. And um, gosh, food floor, that's like such a good question. I mean, I, I feel like, um, I feel like I know about my family through food, which, which I guess is not the same as like food, food lore in, um, outside of my family, but, um, like the way in which I know about like my great grandmother, for example, was like, I, I don't know a lot about this woman. Like, I don't know her, um, like, beliefs or her like politics, or I don't know, like her favorite kind of music. But what I knew about her was that she um, would sit on the porch with my mom and eat subu, which um, subu is like, it's kind of like escargot. It's like um, snails. And I don't know exactly how they're cooked. I think they might be like boiled or blanched or something. And then like you sit with a big bucket of them and you have to like use a knitting needle to like pick them out. And, and then you like, you know, you drop the shells into a bucket. And so, and so like, that's, that's like the lore of this person is <laughs> like, she was, she was an eater of snails and she was a fryer of hot dogs and soy sauce. And she was a cooker of, um, whole perch in various kinds of sauces. And she cooked everything on this really tiny stove and, had the ability to like, um, she could like put a piece of fish into her mouth and, um, only spit out the bones. Like, like she was <laughs> adept that way. And, um, and so I do, I do feel like that's, that's the way in which I understand like my family in a lot of ways, like, especially the older generations is, um, is these stories that I hear about them and, um, either like, foraging like like um uh like going like diving for um abalone and you know digging for clams and things like that or um uh well in a lot of like folks in my family were like uh were like alcoholics so like um like uh make like making their own and when they were in camp like making their own wine by putting like a bunch of like raisins and sugar into a bucket and making like bathtub wine basically and drinking vanilla extract. And so like, I guess there's the way in which I understand a lot of those older generations, especially the ones that I didn't know as well um, is it, it's, I guess it's lore like. Um, that's, a, that's amazing. In my family, um, we also have many eaters of snails. Um, Italian, my dad's family is Italian, and the Italians also enjoy eating, eating a sea snail, uh, <laughs> like in a, in a, in a kind of um, like salty salad. Um, but no, what you're saying about the first um, sentence and, and that it, you know, it could be about the problem of the sentence itself or the story or what you don't know. I think that's, that's also really fascinating because so many of these, um, I don't know, these like uh, larger symbolic structures or images, maybe we're not necessarily being intentional about, but, but kind of come from somewhere from, um, things that are half remembered or from family story or for things we've read. And it's just interesting to, to see how, or maybe from our unconscious, how they, how they eddy up. And, um, I mean, my family is also, uh, 
known to me through food. I mean, my dad is, is a chef and, um, and had a pizza shop when, when I was, um, when I was growing up and food being transportative or also, um, like transformational, like food. I mean, obviously we bring food, you know, into our bodies through the portals of our mouths. And then Mm -hmm. it does something that I don't fully understand chemically inside of us, um, which is, you know, obviously cool, but you also, when you're (laughs) cooking, like, you know, you put, you put like flour and oil, you know, together with flame and like, you know, the, the different materials are transformed into something else. And my grandmother's, um, you know, one of them, there's a spell to break the malocchio um, that's passed down through the family and there's, there are actual chanted words, but, um, but the materials you use are water and olive oil. So it actually still feels like a food, sort of like a, a food spell. And yeah. then my, my mom's family is Greek and on the Greek side, um, there's a spell that you say over the soup, the avgo lemino that keeps the lemon, um, and the egg from curdling. And mm. I don't know the words of the spell because my, you know, my, my grandmother, my yaya was, was sort of a wicked witch and like no one, no one, I mean, kind of totally apart from the chanting of spells. And so, you know, no one, no one got the words from her. I guess they rejected the words and the spell, but I think about, um, I think about those, yeah, those relationships between, um, like food and magic and in your story, um, the cricket ends up eating the family itself. Like you're, you're talking about how, how, you know, your family through food. And then it, it does, you know, in, in the story, it takes on this fairy tale, like resonance because this, you know, the, once you go into the dream space, the cricket starts devouring the mother and then all of the family members of, of Mar- Margaret. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, did that, did you just arrive there? Did you know that would happen, that you would move from, you know, <laughs> her making food, which is maybe this source of connection and this way of knowing family. And then, and then the cricket says, no, I'm going to eat your family itself. Um, <laughs> how, like, what was it like to get to that, that place? Yeah. I, well, I, I'll say that I, I didn't know that I didn't know that was going to happen when I started writing the story for sure. Um, I mean, I do think that there's, there's just something that happens when writing, I don't know how it is for other writers, but there's just like a, like a pool, like a magnetism towards making the problems deeper and deeper, you know, as, as you write through. And, um, at at least I felt that way. And at some point I did realize like what I was really trying to write was like a monster movie or like a, you know, like a, a monster story, but like the, you know, but the monster was going to be like the size of a cricket, you know, it looked like a cricket, um, only have the strength of a cricket, you know, um, in the real world, but, um, but, you know, could sort of like transport into dreams and have this other, these other sort of uncanny abilities. Um, but then would also sort of be like a, a vampire and like have to ask for permission for like a lot of, a lot of things. Um, so yeah, so I think, I think it was just at, at some point I did think like, you know, I think it was when, you know, there's that part where like, he's like, oh, just put me by your ear. I remember writing some of this where I was just like, I, I really don't know what's going to happen next. And um, I was like, wow, once they're in the dream space, what, what, what is going to happen? You know, like, what is that going to be? And I think it was around that time I was like, oh, it's, 
it's a monster movie. It's like, it's like some version of like Freddy Krueger and like, um, you know, um, what, what is the, what are those man eating plants, little shop of horrors or something like that. And, um, and so I think, uh, and I, uh, I don't, I don't know how it, how it got there, you know? Um, but, uh, I do think part of it too, is just like something I try to think about is like how to make a reader feel like they're experiencing something like they are new, like, like not only to make the work seem new to them, but also I want the, the work just to like make a reader feel like welcomed and like relaxed and excited. And, um, I want the, like the environment to feel like, I don't know, like the lobby of their favorite movie theater or something, you know, like I want the smell of popcorn in the air and like (laughs) snacks on display and like, and, um, and so, and, and then I, I want like the reader to feel like they're approaching that interaction with like fresh eyes and ears. And, um, and I think maybe it's that way too, because of the, the content I'm attracted to. Like, I feel like I'm often writing about things that are pretty like personal and idiosyncratic. Uh, and then I'm also writing about like, you know, like racism and mass incarceration and like kind of a grim history. And so I don't always know, but like, I suspect a lot of readers might come to that content or those topics with like a level of fatigue and, um, or maybe even like the assumptions they are going to be like, I don't know, like taught a lesson or, or like scolded or something like that. Or, um, I, sh- I don't know, I should just speak for myself. Like I, I know I do, I come, I come to that content sometimes feeling like I might be in for that kind of adventure. But, um, so I almost feel like the, like the magical insect, you know, and the, like, the descriptions of food, you know, and the, like the sort of like thrilling monster movie element to it. Like a lot of that is just communicating, like I've just done what I can to make this feel new and surprising, you know, if it's, if it's possible, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, your this story and, um, and the, the book that it's a part of the book of Kane and Margaret, um, it definitely has that effect on me when I, um, when I read your writing, I feel simultaneously lulled into this sort of trance state of just marvelment, but then also I feel wide awake and like everything is, is buzzing. And when you, um, when you won the, um, the Sukunit contest and I had your, your book and manuscript and started um, reading it to myself, I, I literally pulled <laughs> friends that came into my orbit um, into chairs and read aloud to them from your book because it felt like it came into me and then I just had to speak it allowed because of, um, I think because of exactly what you're saying you intend to do because of the surprise that you, um, that you produce, um, with your sentences and the images. And I see the book of Cain and Margaret as, um, as a, as a novel. I don't know if, do you see it as a novel or do you see it as <laughs> linked stories? I don't know if it even matters, but, um, do you think of it one way or the other? First of all, just like, thank you for all those things you just said like thank you for all those kind things you just said and I um you've made my year Joanna and um I I I don't know I mean I I think it'll be different for every reader I guess and I I think like some people might be 
angry with it being called a novel. I, I don't know if there are people who get angry about these things, but, um, <laughs> or, or, you know, or, or maybe it's like fun to come to it with like novel, like expectations. And then it's, it's more like a mosaic, you know, or something. Um, I, I do like to think about it as a novel because I feel like the, the echoes that happen throughout the piece are kind of what I'm most interested in as opposed to just like every piece singularly, I guess, you know, as its own, as its own little universe. And, um, and so much is like share, like so much of the same, like sourdough is like shared, you know, from, <laughs> from piece to piece that, uh, it, yeah, it just felt like it was all the same. It, it was going to make a little bit of like the same bread in a way, you know, like, um, throughout, even if, even if there wasn't going to be one, you know, consistent character that was going to move throughout the whole thing. Um, well, that, fe- that, that just seems, um, like the perfect metaphor to me, the idea that there's this little piece of the same sourdough on, on, on every page. And the sourdough is some semi-sentient, ancient, constantly changing, fermenting um, blob that then is generating sort of new bread. But there's always that, like that sour grain of the, you know, the the er thing in each piece. Cause I, one of the reasons why I like thinking of it as a novel is because of, um, because of just seeing how you keep, um, reforming, uh, the, the material and the way that the, um, we see the, the ca- characters that share these names, um, but they're in a mosaic way. They're like completely recontextualized by, um, I don't know, um, some a new series of incidents or new characteristics or you know in this in this story Margaret has a cricket in another story she is a cicada um, and that's amazing and there are so many um, insects throughout earwigs and ants and tiger beetles and scorpions and dragonflies and lace wings I mean I can't even I mean they're just there's there's so many they're just um, like creeping and flying and, and, and buzzing all over. And so many of the, um, I don't know, the stories, the chapters, the vignettes, the pieces, or, you know, whatever the little bits of, of, of sourdough, um, have to do with dreams. Um, and that, that's something I'm, I'm really interested in because dreams are so, um, you know, they can be so personal, but then, you know, they can also, um, you know, the way the interpretive lenses for dreams or the idea that we might share, um, I don't know, a kind of like collective dreaming around, um, certain, I don't know, certain, certain facts or, um, or certain, um, certain realities. Um, but I, so I wanted to, to ask about dream in this, um, in this story, because there's a, there's like a really stark divide between the dream world and the real world. Um, the cricket can't eat in the real world, but can eat a meal in the dream world. But then there's also this threat or hope in the idea that the dream world and the real world are going to collapse into each other. Eating the dream mother and the dream family members and the dream toes 
it starts to have consequences in, um, in the other world in, in the real world where Margaret can no longer remember her family members' names or their quirks of personality, or suddenly she can't walk because her dream toes were devoured. Um, and then the cricket says that he's going to, to chew up the barracks and the sand and the guns. And then she's going to be back in California and she's going to wake up to the, um, something like the the wet thud of black sugar from the plums falling in the night which is like I mean I don't know if that was the phrase the wet the wet thud of black sugar but there's it's such a nightly sound of a it's just like the sound of nightness and plums it's just it's such a lovely line um so I don't know there's like the instability of worlds that like this sort of border between dream and reality feels so fraught and like there's um, there's so much potential there, like for escape, but then there's also peril. And Margaret doesn't believe, um, you know, doesn't doesn't seem to actually believe that he's going to eat his way through the barracks, and then she's going to be free. And the story ends. And I mean, I, I maybe I don't know what what you think or what various readers will think. You know, is a dream cricket eating barracks in a dream ever going to free anybody? And when you when you read the um, when you read the whole book, when you see this in the novel, um, you know, it doesn't end there. <laughs> that's that's not this isn't the last story in the book. Um, we we move on and we see. Margaret, um, her name circulating and different things happening to her. So it isn't something where we get to this, um, you know, the end of the end of the camp or the end of, of her incarceration. But anyway, I was just so interested in um, the way you articulate these different worlds and then in the possibility that we're going to um, slide between them or that mm. consequences that we're going to bleed across the realities. Um, and I don't know if there's even a question in that, except I'm, I'm just really interested in, in the work that you see dream doing um, in the story and, um, you know, in, in the book too, or even in your own life as a writer. I mean, do you write from your dreams? Um, you know, do you, do you, do you dream of insects? Like there are so many more insects and birds and maybe even reptiles, I think, in your stories than than mammals, which is I, I think is kind of it's just interesting. I think mammals are maybe over I mean are overrepresented in narrative versus the you know all these other all these other kingdoms. And reading your work, I'm like, wow, insects, <laughs> more insects than I've ever considered. Um, yeah, yeah, they're everywhere. I um, so thinking about the time in which I wrote the book. Um, uh, so a lot of it, I think has to do with like the ways in which these stories were kind of passed down to me, uh, like from, from my grandparents and, um, the, so my, a lot, a lot of the time when I was writing this book, my grandfather was, um, was dying at the time he was, um, he ultimately died of kidney failure and, um, every night he'd have to like hook himself up to this, um, like dialysis machine. And it was at that point in his life that he used to have these really vivid dreams. And I'm not sure if it was partly because of like the, the chemicals that weren't leaving his body or, um, or, you know, or being kind of uncomfortable, like always being a little bit kind of like half awake. 
um, from having to, um, having to be like hooked up, you know, to those machine every night. And, um, so he would describe these dreams that he was having, you know, um, while doing dialysis and they would be, most of them would really be like nightmares. Like they would be, um, like, you know, he was stuck in a coffin and like, he could hear someone's voice, but he like, couldn't get out of the coffin. Um, but I remember one of the dreams that he said he had, and it was one of the last things he actually said to me before he died was, um, he's like, I think you'll see me one of these days and I'm just going to be like, um, you know, it's like in this dream he was having, he was like, I'm just going to be this bug that's crawling along the edge of the universe. And, um, we all just looked at each other. I was with him and my grandma and we like looked at each other and laughed, but, um, but there is, there is like something about that thing that he said that is kind of like in, in the book somehow that, um, that it is like there, you know, the characters are these like just bugs that are crawling along the edges, edges of these alternative universes. And, um, I so I think too, like um, something that both of my grandparents had told me of living in camp was um, that they they would have these dreams of California, like and how weird that was that um, they were, uh, you know, they were in these barracks in um, in the middle of Arizona, but they would have these dreams where they were like transported back to um my grandfather's from Santa Maria and he'd like have these dreams of you know like being like looking at the ocean or like my grandmother would have these dreams of like being in like Gardena or um Venice like in LA where she grew up and and it would be disorienting of like when they woke up they were like oh that's right like we're we're um we're out like in the middle of of Arizona and um I that was just something that I I noted like even at the time I was like, that's like, it's, it was uh, almost like too good of a, of a metaphor or something like, you know, there's a longing to be back, you know, back home, but you're only transported through the dream world there and all the like disorientation and disappointment that happens, you know, when you wake up. And um, so I, I do think like that's one of the reasons why the dreams kind of like echo throughout the pieces and why there are these, these spaces where like, you know, you get to like, you get to eat anything you want to eat, you know, only in dreams. And you get to like, you know, you get to smell what the ocean smells like, you know, but only in these dreams. And, um, uh, and then I think the other part of it is like, so I, I sort of wrote like one half of the book, like right around the time my grandfather was, um, was doing dialysis and fading. And the other half was kind of written shortly after he passed away. And I would have these dreams of him actually, where like we would be sitting at his kitchen table and we would be talking. And at some point, like I would, I would, this happened like almost every time I'd become self-aware in the dreams and say, oh my gosh, grandpa, like this must be a dream because actually you're, you're gone. You know, like you're, I know that you're, I know that you're, you've died. And, um, so I think it's also like thinking about dreams is like this place where like, you can speak to the dead. Like you can speak to, um, someone who's no longer there physically. Um, and yeah, so I guess, I guess it comes from my own life. I mean, I, 
thinking about it now, maybe it seems like they're a little bit too on the nose, like in the <laughs> literary way, but, but they, those are the things that were happening to me, I guess. In the, in this story, um, Mar- we, we learned that Margaret used to dream of, of California and Venice and she'd be transported back. And then her dreams become um, a tether. So even in her dream, she can't, she can't get there anymore. Like she can't hear the ocean and that, I don't know the way that her, that just like little, I mean, it's only, it's only like a couple of lines that it's not dwelled on, but the fact that even her dream space is kind of enclosed in, a, in, in the moment um, in Gila. It's interesting. I wonder if maybe, um, you know, the cricket isn't going to free her in the real world, but um, in eating through the, the dream barracks, maybe, um, I don't know, maybe that dream space is going to reach the ocean again. Um, Cause it's, it's, it's not that he is eating. Um, he's not eating the barracks in waking life. He's eating, um, he's eating the barracks in, um, in the dream space. And they're aware also um, of the fact that they're within the dream. Margaret, you know, Margaret is speaking of it as a dream and saying, um, you know, that, uh, this is just the dream of one woman. Uh, the same world will be rebuilt the moment I awaken. She knows she's dreaming. And so anyway, just thinking about your lucid dreams and the lucidity that Margaret has at the, at the end there where it's not, um, it's not, it's not like obfuscating anything, the dream world. It's like, maybe she has this, this new power, this new clarity, or that's what, um, I don't know, maybe that's what the magic is, but that's, I mean, that's, that's beautiful. Your, um, your grandfather said a bug, that he's a bug on the edge of the universe. Is that yeah, what it is? He, he said something like, um, <laughs> that's amazing. He was going to be a bug crawling on the, <laughs> it's like crawling on the glass on the edge of the universe, something like that. <laughs> wow. And, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's at the time it was just something that, you know, my grandmother was like looking at him. I can see her looking at him at the time, just thinking about, what are you talking about? Like, what are you telling, what are you telling our grandson? But, um, but maybe that's, you know, I've come to think about it a lot. Maybe that's, that's true. I, I don't know. And did they ever, did, um, did your grandfather or any of your grandparents who, um, who were interned, have they heard or, or read your book? They, not really. Um, my, my grandmother lived to have a copy of it, but I think by that time, she was like 96, I think by the time it came out. And um, by that time, she just really wasn't reading at all. And I think too, because the book is pretty strange in form, you know, um, she she just had a hard time thinking about it and understanding it. And so we would we would still talk about her stories, but um, we, we rarely talked about the book, even though she knew, she knew I had written it for her, you know, in a way. Um, but I think too, by that time, you know, I, I'd had many like attempts of writing about my grandparents and like many forms, like poems and like nonfiction and other like short things. And I think they had seen a lot of my like my like janky failed attempts along the way that um, by that time, like they, she knew she was like, Oh, it's, 
this is not really going to quite be like our memoir. You know, this is, <laughs> this is not going to quite be like, you know, <laughs> us at our list. This is going to be this other, like the way you're processing this is like, it's going to come out as this other weird thing. And um, she, I think she felt like honored with it. She was okay with it being that, but she never read it and talked to me about it. Um, which, uh, which is, yeah, which is too bad. I mean, uh, I, I am curious, although maybe it was also going to just be too weird for her to, yeah. Um, is it okay? Oh, Joanna, I, could we go back to talking about the sourdough? Cause I actually, oh, have, yeah. is it okay? I, and is it okay to ask you about baking and also yeah, I have like absolutely. a couple Okay. Yeah, I, let's talk I, about sourdough. Well, I think I had read you you had worked in bakeries a lot. And um is that is that true? That yeah, uh, I mean I I I worked, I mean I've worked in restaurants a lot as an independent uh adult, but because my dad's a baker and when I was growing up had a pizzeria, I kind of spent my um, you know, my my unsupervised childhood in the you know, in and around, uh, the pizza shop and, um, yeah, folding pizza boxes more than, um, baking and, and sort of putting, putting cheese through the, you know, the industrial, you know, cheese grater and cutting pepperoni and things like that. But yeah, I mean, my, all of my, all of my formative years were, were spent in a bakery. Uh, I, um, well, I guess, uh, now, now that I look down at my question, maybe this is <laughs> going to be a dumb question, but I'm going <laughs> to ask it anyway, which is like, okay, so I'm not a baker at all, but like my impression of baking is like, it's really difficult to break the rules of baking and still make something like recognizable as like bread or pastry. And so like the, the chemistry, like the chemistry of it is demanding, right? Like you can't sub in fizzy water if you don't have a rising agent and, um, but I guess like, like my question is like, so for me, like when I read your books, like you seem like a writer that likes to break free from rules and forms and that likes to live in like ambiguous literary territory. And I have kind of two questions. And like, one's like, the first is like baking, which is like, do you know, did you notice that impulse to want to like break free and innovate or experiment when you were like in the kitchen or you like, even when you're in the kitchen today? So interesting. It's, you know, my, it's funny because my, you know, I have my, um, my, my dad is very, um, traditional in a sense, not in his, not in his personal life, but in his, uh, in his approach to, to baking and to, to food, it's like very, very grounded in like a Southern Italian culinary tradition, like, you know, making food coming up in kitchens that, um, you know, were run by Italians that have like very, you know, uh, very rule bound ideas of like what, you know, what goes into like a, a classical dish or like what goes into a pizza grana, which is like the Italian uh, like Easter pie, like, you know, it's, you, you don't make substitutions. It's no longer that thing. If you make a substitution, it's very important that you, you know, you have the right ingredients and you do it in a very particular way. Like my, my, my grandmother would say you made polenta a grain at a time because that's how slowly you have to put the cornmeal into the boiling water. And so I have, I've always had this like very (laughs) strong sense that like, if you deviate from any of those rules in the kitchen, you can make something that you might like, but it can no longer be be called, um, 
you know, it's not polenta anymore. Or it's not a pizza grana. It's like, it's something else. Um, and I've always perhaps broken the, <laughs> broken the hearts of my Neapolitan family members by always doing something else. Um, but it's like a warring instinct because, um, because I do have this, um, I don't know, this like powerful urge to like recognize that there is, there is a way to do something according to these rules and these traditions. And that what I'm doing is something that's not legible, um, according to that. Um, so I really like, I like hearing my father's voice in my head and like hearing his commentary and his critique when I'm doing something utterly outlandish in the kitchen, but I also like to do um, other things. So I'm like constantly fighting with myself and uh, hearing the voice of my father and he's, as he's sort of shaking his head um, and, and also like finding fault with the way I hold the knife. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, probably, I mean, it's, I, I don't know if you find it, but like food traditions, I mean, they connect you with, you know, they connect you with, with family and with ancestors, but I mean, they can also feel like really heavy and really strict. Um, so it's something, I don't know. There's like, so there's so much, um, I don't know, like that's prescribed around food, um, in families. And I, I have often, uh, resisted it. It's like one of like the really fundamental, uh, I don't know, like fundamental arenas, like the, for contest, I think, like refusing to eat the food <laughs> or like eating a different kind of food. I mean, I, I found that like rebellion has often been food-based for me in my life coming from like a, such a, like all encompassing like food tradition. Yeah. Is it, and sorry, I have a, I promise I have a follow-up that's more writing-based, but um, now that we're talking about this, I am so fascinated that I like, um, what is there, is there also like a comfort in that to like the strictness of those rules? Like, um, like having, you know, having these other generations of folks that follow the traditions very closely and, um, but, and knowing that you don't, but also loving you through that, like, is there, uh, I guess I'm just wondering if there's, there's also a comfort to that. Like someone who's not necessarily saying, go ahead and be as creative as you want, you know, like go ahead and innovate whatever you want. Like, um, there's, there's that, but there's almost like, I almost feel like someone has to love you more if they're like, there's Joanna breaking the rules again. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's definitely true in, in, in my family, because there are also people like recognize me and accommodate me in in these ways that are really, really sweet and tender. But then there is for me a comfort in knowing, um, knowing the traditions. And I feel like it's also connected to, to hospitality. You know, it's like when you have family coming you know, you make pastries, you put out the coffee or you have an antipasta, like the different things that you, you know, that you're going to, to serve and that everyone is going to, I don't know, enjoy or reject if, if you're like me, but, um, yeah, there's some, I, I find there to be a lot of, um, comfort in that. And also, um, I don't know, there's like a kind of, uh, it lets it lets you focus on other things. Like you know, the conversation is going to be facilitated 
by the coffee and the baba rums and the basta shots and the spoolies and like they're all gonna like the pastries will be moving around the table so you don't have to worry about how you're i don't know creating an environment it's like you know you know what to do because for generations this is how family comes together um i don't know there's something about that that i find i do find comforting even you know even though there are ways that I don't know. You see how gender roles get reinforced through it because, you know, the women are bringing out the coffee and the men are sort of holding court, eating, <laughs> eating the cannoli or, you know, so there, there are all of these ways where I, I see the things that I want to push back against. But then also um, there is something so familiar and nourishing about it all, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah, it feels I agree. It feels there are things that it feels like home. Yeah. And uh, I, um, so my follow-up question was going to be to ask about when you write, um, when you write like in the romance mode, which is like, I, it's something that I don't know about. So I'm just so curious to hear you talk about it, but where it would seem like the, the audience might be very much more demanding of the conventions of the genre. And knowing you as like a writer who likes to often like break out of those rules and conventions, like how are, how, what are the mental gymnastics that happen when you're, when you're writing romance? Yeah, it's been really challenging to write romance. I mean, I've always read romance and really enjoyed it. And I mean, this, this ties into the pizza shop childhood that I was describing too, because, you know, there's only so many hours you can fold pizza boxes or, you know, just like <laughs> run around on the blacktop. Um, so I would walk to the library where they were, you know, down the street and they were always selling 10 cent books and they were usually romance novels. And so I would just read them constantly as a kid. Um, and I, I tried my my hand at writing them a few times over the years, and I've just recently started doing it um, more seriously. And uh, I do sometimes feel like I'm not quite adequate to the um, to the conventions and the tropes because I feel like I need to read more romance. Like I feel, you know, it's there's so many things to read, and I, I love so many different kinds of writing, and so I think I've neglected my romance reading um, a bit, and it it is. It is something, um, you know, the genre, there are, there's so much variation and people doing really creative, um, like work within the constraints, but, um, it is very, it is very constrained and I'm a really associative writer when not, um, writing romance. Like I like to follow, you know, the, you know, the, the sounds of, of the words and kind of let one sentence lead me to the next sentence or, um, jump from image to image or, you know, digress. And, uh, with romance, yeah, you can't, you can't be digressive in that way because everything is kind of, um, economically connecting, up so that you have a very, um, you know, strong central narrative that's developing um, an intimate relationship between um, usually two main characters. And I find that really uh, difficult, <laughs> but it's also really fun. And I think one of the things that was hardest for me is being somebody who works um, so often at the sentence level where I'm, I'm really like interested often as a reader in 
you know, hone sentences that surprise me, like your sentences. Um, and I like to try to write those kinds of sentences myself. And romance novels um, have really fine writing in them, but they're not often composed of sentences that are trying to do a lot of um, surprising, innovative work at the level of the line. And so, you know, writing sentences that feel a little bit um, more transparent um, and going for um, bigger effects, like at the level of the paragraph. Um, it's just a, compl or like thinking about scenes and, um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, tension across scenes or something like that, even as like individual sentences don't seem that important. It's almost like um, uh, creating like amplitude or compression to get, to sort of generate energy or propel people through the chapter. It's just a completely different way of thinking about um, writing uh, for me. Um, and it's really cool. And I think a lot of genre work operates more like that. Like it's entertaining. It gives you incident. Um, and character, you know, ca characters kind of serve the action, and a few characters are developed, and you know, you follow them on a particular kind of journey. Um, it's it's been really fun, but I, I find it, uh, I find, <laughs> yeah, I, I find it a little bit, um, a little bit counterintuitive, and so I, I like teaching myself about it. And I'm reading more romance, so hopefully that will will help. Um, but it's funny, I think of it kind of as a um, constraint based form um you know i think in the you know experimental literary writing community um you know constraint is sort of valorized like you know the olipu school or, but then when it's it's in the you know the genres it's uh you know considered unoriginal or formulaic or something like that so the i like i i like to break down the value judgments there um but yeah, writing romance, it's it's been very consuming the past couple of years because I have these um, books that I'm working on for deadline. And um, it feels both um, like completely alien to what I usually do. But then there are these like connections in terms of, I don't know, the kinds of thoughts I have about um, about both kinds of writing feel, I don't know, enriched by either. And does, um, like, has your relationship to like fans of your work or like audiences of your work, do you, do you feel like that has changed too? Like as, as to like, as, um, as you're saying, like the, the romance, um, novels, like really popular, like, uh, do you feel like your relationship to your fans now is, is different or is it just like you have two different groups of fans that are not the same or what, what is like, what is that like? It's so, it's, it's funny fans. I like it. I want to ask you about fan fiction in, in a minute or about fandom, but um, I do think it's, it's, I do think that the people who have read the work that I'm publishing as Joanna Lowell would, maybe they would like the things I publish as Joanna Rocco, but I don't necessarily think that that would be the case. So I think it's, um, I mean, I like both kinds of things, so I'm sure some other people do too, but, um, I think it's, I think it's different groups of people. Um, but I, yeah, I think, um, you know, th there are so many 
romance readers. And I think a lot of romance readers read really voraciously and have very strong opinions about the kinds of tropes that they like. Like, you know, there's so many, like the kinds of heroes that they like, like alpha heroes or beta heroes or cinnamon roll heroes or um, just one bed trope, enemies to lovers, fake dating. I don't know. There are like so many different um, things that people are into and they can break it down. And, um, and romantic comedy, like rom-coms are really popular right now. And my, Mm. my work is um, darker. And I've talked to a couple of book clubs and have had several people about, about the Duke Undone, the book that I published um, as Joanna Lowell this year. And several people commented on how, how stressed they were reading it. Cause I think maybe it was like a little bit um, darker than, um, than they expected. So I have had much more sort of like forthright conversations with people saying, I liked this, I didn't like that. Um, and part of it has to do maybe with um, um, just like a completely different um, relationship that I have to um, uh, publishing because this is a, um, it's just a different kind of press. It's like a uh, I don't know, is it even the big five anymore? It's like there are fewer and fewer, um, but you know, it's a press with like a marketing team and I had to do some social media stuff. And so people will say things on those platforms. Um, so it, yeah, it has, it has been very uh, kind of uh, bracing and, and, and interesting, um, but also cool to interact with people um, like far, far more people um, yeah, there's something, um, I feel like the, the smaller community of like folks that read, um, FC2 books and other small press books. Um, I feel like there's, there's like, there's also like a a lot of like love there and people, um, you know, finding, finding the books and, and kind of, I don't know, word of mouth or small bookstores and, um, like everyone kind of is just doing it for the love and, um, you know, romance is, is about love, but it's also like kind of a big business. And so the books are just kind of circulating in in the world much more robustly. So yeah, I mean, all of it, all of it is, is, is different sort of like the process of writing it, but then also like the way the books circulate and are, and are received just in part because of how, um, you know, how different, um, sort of small press and then, um, yeah, like the, sort of mainstream publishing how how those those things operate it's it's cool to have people who've read some stuff that I've written under my own name read um read the Duke Undone the Joanna Lowell book and kind of hear their thoughts um I haven't had to go the opposite direction yet and that would be sort of interesting too yeah I thank you so much for talking about that I, I was just um yeah I've been wanting to ask you that question for a long time and um is it? I have um. I have just this question about. Oh, sorry. I know you have questions too, though. Well, I, I wanted have. to ask you about fan fandom and fan and fan um, and fan fiction because um, you know you you talked with great enthusiasm about monster movies and like thinking about the um, the cricket um, in your story as uh, as a as a kind of monster vampire figure and. Um, I, I, I read, um, your poem that is, um, mix, sort of mixing words from 
Anaconda, the, the, Nick, the Nicki Minaj lyrics. And I think you've said in bios that you, um, you think your best poems are X-Men fan fiction and that you describe your, um, your, your fictions or you have in, in other places on the internet as dream pop speculative fictions and, you know, dream pop, like as a musical genre. And so it just seems like you're, you know, engaging with, um, yeah, with music and comics and movies and doing it in a really like amatory, maybe kind of fan, fan based sort of way. And I'm just, I'm curious, like, do you see yourself as, as like a fan of different things? And do you, um, do you see yourself as, as writing fan fiction poetry or (laughs) fan fiction? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I, um, it's, it's funny, but I, I'm always just waiting to be found out as like just a writer of, of only, man, that is how I see myself. It's just like a, <laughs> yeah. a writer of fan fiction and like in some ways just like, just like part of a cover band or something. But like the covers are um, like, like I'm in like a Nirvana cover band or something, but my playing is so bad that it's almost not recognizable as (laughs) Nirvana. So that, that is how I see it sometimes. Um, but, um, yeah, I, for the, the poems, it is true. And like, for whatever reason, like poetry seems like the more fun space to like be an explorer or like being, being a fan. And I, have this like weird infatuation with Wolverine, the Marvel comic book character and thinking about like all the different iterations of like what Wolverine can be. I mean, I know he's, he's existed in many different iterations, you know, over the years, um, but has like a lot of the qualities have stayed kind of similar in, in the comics that I've read. Like he's usually like really, you know, he's like pretty grouchy, pretty um, strong, angry, fast healing, um, but really prickly. He doesn't heal, you know, from emotional wounds very easily. And um, for some reason, I, I, I wish there's part of me that wishes there was a comic of a superhero that was like the exact opposite of Wolverine. <laughs> it's like, but like the same powers, but just the inverse. So like, he would be like incredibly um, like mature, like, or like, like very, like the healthiest you could be emotionally, superhumanly healthy emotionally, but almost have like no healing ability at all and and no strength at all. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but it just seems like poetry is the only place to really explore that idea, you know, of like this mutant inverse of, of Wolverine or like Cyclops or, you know, Iceman, like for some reason, I'm really interested in the X-Men, um, in, in particular. And, um, yeah, I, uh, I just, I started teaching, you know, this spring at, uh, Western Washington university and a lot of my students this past quarter actually wrote, um, what they call fan fiction in, in our workshop. And I think there was this idea that like, because they were writing fan fiction or it was somehow less good or like less right or less creative, you know, or less 
valuable in some ways because it was fan fiction. And um, I, I, I know there like is that assumption and like maybe like in the publishing world, like it is that way, but like certainly like on the level of like just a writer for the love of their own writing process and the, their own excitement about writing and, um, you know, in like a more like, you know, beginning workshop setting, I feel like there's so much value to writing through fan fiction, you know, or like writing through the things that you're excited about and taking that little bit of the pre-existing world or that pre-existing matter, you know, the sourdough and, um, and riffing off of it and making it your own thing, making it relevant to you. Um, I just find that to be really, as a reader and like as a teacher, I'm really excited when I read that stuff. And um, and it also feels nice too, because like there's that common, like there's that common, like, a, you know, I, I may not know everything, like every variation they're working on, but I do know Wolverine. So like, I always know we can go back to talking about that or talking about, you know, the flash or Shazam or, you know, whatever, whatever they're, whatever they're working on. Um, can I, oh, oh, can I ask a, a music question for you, Joanna? Yeah. Yeah. Like I've, um, so I think I've heard you read twice, although I get, I get kind of confused because I, I've watched your readings on like YouTube and Vimeo too, but I, I know for sure I was there for, um, this reading that you did at UC San Diego and, I think you might've read from, um, bog hole in the bedlam, but, um, uh, it's possible it was also mothering Kevin. Um, but like sonically it was like, it was like no reading I'd ever heard before. And it was almost like, like it reminded me of the first time I heard, um, like when I was in high school and I heard like Idiotech by Radiohead, <laughs> like, um, the first time my wife showed me that song, I think it's called girl boy song by Aphex twin. And like, when I heard those, like my brain had to like rotate 90 degrees on my shoulders. And it was like listening to music, like one universe over from this one. And that's, that's kind of how I felt listening to you read your stuff, like the harmonies in it, the like sharp staccato beats that are like created by the, the repetitions, or even sometimes just like the near repetitions within it is like hearing the literature like from one universe over and um but it just it made me want to ask about your about musical influences like um is that something that uh you're conscious of or aware of in your writing and um and then I was also going to ask like if if there was like any like musical training that somehow influences your writing um but yeah but maybe maybe I'll just start with those two things wow that that's amazing. Your rotated brain. That's, that's kind of the best. Thank you. Um, I, I have no musical training and, um, my mom's family is, is, uh, is musical. And the, the name that I use for, um, my romance, Joanna Lowell, it's actually, um, an intergenerational pseudonym that comes from, um, my Yaya's singing trio. They were, um, she said she had a, she and her two sisters, were singers and they would, um, they would tour around the Borscht Belt, um, when they weren't, you know, working in the, the mills in Lowell, Massachusetts. And they were the Rodopolis sisters, but instead of being 
the Rodopolis sisters, they called themselves the Lowell sisters for Lowell, Massachusetts. So I, I borrowed that as a, as a pseudonym. So I, I took that name, but I inherited none of the musical gifts. And um, my dad's family is so profoundly unmusical that when um, when they would have to sing in, in Catholic school, the nuns would, um, you know, in choir, the nuns would like walk back and forth, like with their fingers out, like scanning the risers until they identified the person from whom the like ungodly sounds were were issuing and then they would say you mouth the words you know that sort of thing because they were so <laughs> so tone deaf um so anyway i i think i fall more into that um into that camp and um i've always had really musical friends and you know friends in bands and friends who have um like very um specific um and well developed and deeply informed and um kind of awesome musical taste and so i lived with other people for so long that i would kind of be in the soundscapes that um others had had kind of like made for me and felt really excited by that and so I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I lived with some people that were really into Northern soul and some people that were really into like sort of shoegaze and then more specifically people that were into like dungeon crawl synthesizer music. And so I would kind of have like other people's soundscapes and just was finding myself in those spaces. And I don't know, that was always really fun. And now that I live alone, I find that I write in, in, in like in silence. Um, and all of the sort of musical effects or rhythms, I think, um, are are really coming from um, like patterns of language or like other people's books and seeing other rhythms and sentences. Like I, you know, I like to read a, a lot of books in translation and and looking at I don't know just the way sentences are are put together. Um, I think that's where that stuff is mostly coming from. Though for like the mothering coven. Um, I would listen to a lot of um, like Hild like people doing um, Hildegard von Biggen, like the mystics, like putting her music to <laughs> like choirs doing her music. Or um, I also listened to um, the magic Mozart's magic flute a bunch because somehow that had to do with the, with the book. So sometimes I'll, I'll do something um, like that. And I think um, the bog hole and the bell dame that, that, project it was there was like a lot of um a lot of synthesizer music like I don't know like Tangerine Dream and John Carpenter and those kinds of things um in the background um but I'm curious because you talk about uh, you know dream pop and I think have described your um your poetry is dark wave, minimalist poetry. So do you have um, very particular musical influences? Or do you, um, do you write with music? I, um, yeah, sorry. I, I, um, I was just writing. To, I have to look up the, um, the dungeon dragon crawl synthesizer <laughs> music later. Um, yeah, I, if it, I'm, if anyone who knows a lot about music ever listens to this, they'll know. Um, I don't know what I'm talking about, but but um, I there there was a part of me like when I was working on the that book, the book of Keenan Margaret, that um, that it it was kind of like um, 
Okay, so so here's here's my like very like layman's beginner understanding of like shoegaze and like dream pop music is like when I think about these bands like um like Sigaros and like Cocktoo Twins and My Bloody Valentine and um maybe even like to some extent like uh, like Beach House and XX and bands like that. Um there's there's something that's like that's more um like the larger project of like the album or even like the many albums that use a similar energy and tone and um, instrumentation. Like, it's almost like that's the, that's like the primary goal as opposed to like the individual song. And um, which is not to say like, they don't also write like beautiful, gorgeous, like, you know, phenomenal individual songs too. But um but there's something about like the the way that some of those albums, like um, you know, where there's like these resonances and echoes that happen between songs in the album and even like between albums. And um, it's not like necessarily about like this, like all the energy doesn't go to like supporting this vocal melody, you know, for the chorus of this song. It's more like just this soundscape you know that that moves for like a long 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 time and um and then there's something also that's exciting about like um okay where it's also kind of like even though the soundscape is vast and diverse of like um we're only going to use like these instruments in this way like I'll, I'll use the guitar and the electric bow and like every song will have guitar and electric in it or something and um uh so like there's something attractive to me about like the um the consistency of um the aesthetic for for those bands and it was like much later in the process but when I was working on that book I was like man I I I think like my love of like that kind of aesthetic like that dream pop or that shoegaze aesthetic somehow is like got into my like just got into my blood somehow or something. And um, there was like kind of a desire to make a book that kind of like was mapped that way. Like, okay, I'm going to choose this spare palette, you know, of, of things. It'll be this location that can like move and shift a little bit, but not too much. It'll be the characters that are named these things. They can move and shift a little bit under those names, but it won't move too much. And um, I'll try my best to make the individual like tiles shine as shiny as possible. But really like the, the more important thing for me is like the, um, is like what happens when like a bunch of them wash over you, you know? And um, so I I think that's, uh, you know, someone who knows a lot about music will school me someday, but like that, that was kind of the connection for me, I guess. Um, yeah, and now I'm, now I'm thinking of um, the book of um, Kane and Margaret as like a concept album, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is great. Um, I don't know if you, if you, um, well, you, I probably don't know this, the, 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 um, the sound engineer that's, um, that's producing these podcasts, Joel Thibodeau is a musician and um, his, uh, you know, his band or his 
I don't know, his name as a performer's death vessel. And I think that you would like what he does. So that's another, yeah, that's like a recommendation. Death vessel, yeah. That's tied that's tied in with this <laughs> with this whole podcast. Um I I think I'd read somewhere that when you and Brian were doing um Birkensnake, that you could like trade a recording of yourself reading a story for an issue. Like like you could use that to barter um for an issue. Is that is that true? Yeah, that's yeah. that that is that is precisely true. We um for for years we um we sold Birkensnake for four dollars because we thought that was a reasonable amount. <laughs> for somebody to pay where maybe even $5 at the time we were like, maybe if something was $5, we would think twice, but if it was $4, we would probably just buy it. Um, but then that logic started to break down and we thought, well, why, why are we charging anything? It's such a tiny amount of money. It, it really doesn't really, it doesn't do much in terms of, it's definitely not compensating us for like the labor of making the books or even for the materials, which, you know, we would get largely recycled and we thought, well, we can make it free. Um, but then we thought it was interesting to do something with a different kind of exchange or like something other than a, you know, a monetary transaction. And yeah, so we came up with that idea of creating a sound library of people reading stories that they love in exchange for a Birkenstake. Or we said, if, and if you don't want to do that, you can pay us $27 for a copy because that seemed <laughs> like a deterrent, like who would want to pay that much. But then, <laughs> but then we did have some people who would pay us $27 instead of doing the sound recording, um, which was nice because then we had that money but um it was really cool to get the stories and um yeah and then brian Kahn would use his um i don't know mathematical and computer science wizardry to make that appear on the the website and I, I don't i don't know anything about how how that works but it um he would do that labor and then um they would be there which is it's still i mean that's that holds if people want to send Birkensnake, um, yeah, recordings, we will still send them a Birkenstake. Um, the only issue is that they're that the issue itself is not fully bound. And so then I would have to have to finish binding one to send out, um, which <laughs> I don't know, that would be a project. But yeah, it's and you can, you know, it's all there on the website if um yeah, yeah. if you like listening to um to recorded stories. I mean it's interesting in in um dissolving newspapers, fermenting leaves, you know, the, the, the story that, um, you know, that, that was read, um, that the cricket is recognized by his voice and that the cricket enters dreams through the ear. And in many of the, um, the, you know, pieces, bits of sourdough stories, you know, in, in the book, um, like singing and voice and the ear, it's so important. And then I also feel like you're, um, I don't know, like your writing sort of begs to be read aloud because it's so um, it's sonically patterned and beautiful, but also because um, the narratives feel a little bit like fairy tale or like the kind of thing that you would want somebody to read to you right before bed. So then it can work with your own kind of, you know, dream ferment to create even more images and insects. Um, which is, I don't know, I just, I love that about um, 
about the work and I, I noticed it um, again and again, and it really ties in with what you were saying about imagining your, um, your reader to be your 15 year old self. Um, so it's interesting thinking about writing the book for an older generation, but also sort of writing it to somebody younger, you know, I don't know. I, I, I love that it's doing both of those things kind of like a, appealing in, in both Thank directions. You. Thank you. So I, I am, um, well, yeah, I was going to ask kind of like a, some, a question of which is like the, like what, what is it about experiencing literature through the, the years that, that, you know, you, that you really find to be exciting and, and valuable? I one so one of the things and I don't know, maybe, maybe this is heresy. Um, but one of the things that I like about, um, like audiobooks now, which I, I'm a runner and I, and I, I like just wander around a lot. I like to walk and I am often listening, um, to, so, you know, sometimes I listen to a podcast, but I'm, I'm usually just listening to books. And I, I really, um, I like the way you're just, it sort of blends in with place and your environment more and your intent, your attention goes in and out. That's the part that feels sort of heretical. Like maybe it's like you're, um, you have more of an open focus. So you're, you're maybe not taking it in, in the same way, or like, um, I don't know, like doing quite the same intense, like cognitive work that you would do if you were sitting still reading, but there's something about the world as you move through it, kind of blending with what you're hearing, that for me is, I don't know, I, I just like it. And then there are things about, um, yeah, that I, that I associate with different books that have to do with the place that I was moving through when I, when I heard this or this or that part. And I, maybe some people sit and listen to audiobooks, so it's not that different from sitting with a, a physical book. Um, but for me, because I'm always moving when I'm listening to a book um I just create sort of a different experience which feels much more mixed up um with the world like the yeah like the boundary blurs between the book world and my world because I'm more active in my world while while also being sort of you know having one foot in the the world of of the book um and then there's just also something nice about um yeah hearing hearing language voiced in its cadences and I don't know, more like when the music comes through your ear instead of, instead of the eye, um, I just probably lights up something different in your brain. So I, you know, I like, um, you know, hearing, hearing people read too. Um, and yeah, I mean, <laughs> someday we will gather again, um, and listen to each other in those kinds of spaces and that'll be great. But what, yeah, what about you and, uh, and listening having literature enter through the ear. What is that like for you? I love that. I, well, um, I mean, I'm going to be thinking about what, what you said. I um, I mean, for me, I think, yeah, there's really something comforting about it. Like, yeah, maybe, yeah, even primordial. It, it does take me back to like, uh, you know, like my parents reading me a book, you know, as a, as a kid. Um, and I think there's, there's like also that feeling like reading and writing feels so solitary often and anything where like I get a sense of community like there's like a like a giddiness I feel about that like I'm really I'm like kind of a nervous person but like especially around 
literary people, I'm like extra nervous actually. <laughs> but when when I listen to something being read to me, I get to feel like I'm I'm with another person. I get that sense of community, but I don't have to feel nervous because like I'm actually alone. So for me, it's like a very special thing. It's like I'm with a writer and I'm with a performer and also also alone. So it's just like a special, a special thing to get to hear a story read aloud. Um, and I also get excited when like I hear something read aloud and the performance like skews it in a different direction than how I read it. Like I don't, um, I don't get annoyed by that. Actually, I kind of like it. I get excited when I become more aware that there are like these multiple ways to put um, energy like into a piece of text. What are you working on now? Are yeah, or do you have any summer projects or things that you um, want to write or um, yeah, have have finished or that are coming out? Um, yeah, thank you for asking. I um, my collection of poems I think is going to be out sometime this year. It's called a uh, disintegration made plain and easy with 1913 Press and. It was, it was actually supposed to come out around the same time as the FC2 book, but um, I think just like, you know, pandemic stuff and there are complications and it's gotten pushed back a, a couple of times. And that's actually been kind of a blessing. Um, Gautam Rangan, who did the illustrations for the book of Keenan Margaret, um, also agreed to do illustrations for um, the book of poetry. And, and so this these extensions have kind of given him extra time to do um, some really interesting, really beautiful um, illustrations for the book. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm not excited necessarily to see my poems, but I'm so excited to see Galton's works for, for that book. And, um, and then I'm, I'm working on a couple of collaborations that I'm excited about over summer. I'm working on um, a, a, kind of like a sci-fi book with my friend Aaron Fay and um and then Gao and I are working on working on sort of like a digital storytelling digital poetry project together too and um yeah just hoping to to work on some uh, some of that stuff um well, I can't and, wait I can't wait for all of it thank you Joanna and then to maybe to end is I have like I have like a bunch of rapid fire questions for you. Is that, a, is that okay? So <laughs> like not, not think about them too much. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here's my rapid fire questions. Okay. So yeah, what, um, you could just think of the first thing that comes to mind. Um, okay. Best, best place you've ever given a reading. Oh, wow. Best place I've ever given a reading. Now it's as though I can remember nary a reading. Um, <laughs> this is so not rapid. I'm being the least. <laughs> I'm being the least rapid. Um, I read. I read in um, what state was it in? I read in a church in Michigan, and one of my dear friends showed up, um, and it was like a school reading, you know. So I didn't expect it, you know, exactly that a, a friend would show up. But it was it was kind of cool reading. Um, reading in that, in that church. Cause I also didn't expect it to be a church. Um, but I don't know. I'm also just like, so nerd, like I'm such a nervous reader that if I, um, if I had a reading, it would, 
like ruin my week, you know? And now I'm just so happy that I'm less nervous that I kind of like any reading is sort of fine. I mean, do you have like a, do you have a best reading venue? I don't know about venue, but I'm exactly the same. I mean, I, um, I definitely feel, I definitely get super nervous and yeah, just getting through it is that I can get through it is, um, (laughs) delight. It's delightful. (laughs) Um, Is there something, oh, this is my next rapid fire question, which is what do you, do you eat something to celebrate after an awesome reading? Oh, grapes. I just eat grapes all the time. Grapes, like I would eat grapes to bolster myself. I would eat grapes for courage, but then I would eat grapes to celebrate as well. I feel like the grape is, is, um, (laughs) is like sort of stolid. It's just like always there. It's very stalwart, but then it's also, um, it's also very, very celebratory. So any, any kind of, um, any kind of small globular fruit, like a cherry as well, but definitely, mm-hmm. definitely a grape. I like, I like small, small foods that I can eat repetitively. Like I like a sunflower seed. It used mm-hmm. to be raisins, but then, um, but then, <laughs> but then I, I, I destroyed all of my teeth eating too many raisins. And so I had to um, switch to grapes, which are, I guess that's sort of cutting corners. I mean, they are the same thing, but the, the, <laughs> grape, the grape is, is not as sticky. Do you have a celebratory, a celebratory food? Uh, it, I, when I was living in California, um, in an out burger, um, for sure. But, um, <laughs> I, 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 we moved to Bellingham, Washington and, um, in and out burger doesn't exist out here, but usually like a burger and fries, um, or like a burrito, uh, <laughs> some kind. um, something that like, if I eat it, I fall asleep, you know, um, 10 minutes later. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's uh, okay. Here's the best book about witches. Oh, wow. I guess I'll say Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner, because I just love it so much. Um, yeah, I mean, there are lots of good books about witches. I think there's like all sorts that are really wonderful, but if you haven't read Lolly Willows, it's, it's just, it's just the most, it's just the most marvelous. Yeah. I do think, um, Leonora Carrington's The Hearing Trumpet isn't, isn't like about witches in quite the same way, but I think there are witches there too. And I think that's another one that's really great. Um, when you meet a fan of your romance work who wants to get into your more innovative literary work, what is the book you recommend they start with? Of my own, of my own books? Uh-huh, yeah. Oh, wow. You know, it's, I, I don't think this has happened yet. Um, I wonder what I would say. Um, you know, I often think that Dan is going to be... Um, the book that I wrote that maybe people would like, because <laughs> it's like a novel. I don't know. It's a, it seems sort of as, as though it, you know, it, it ha- it's, I guess it doesn't really have a plot. Um, yeah. So I, I would, I think my instinct would have been to say that, but from certain just like neighbors of mine or folks that have been kind enough to read my books, it seems that they've actually found, um, uh, like man's companions or the weak, um, you know, like stories, like a little bit more um, grounded. Cause I think Dan is maybe weirder than I, than I think it is. Um, so I guess now I would say that maybe I would say the weak or something along those lines. Um, 
Thank you. Uh, and I have only two more rapid fire questions. I'll ask them both at the same time, which is um, best topping on a pizza and um, the next project you're most excited about of yours. Interesting. Um, you know, from my dad's pizza shop, there are, you know, the, the toppings are um, kind of classical. There's not like new, nouveau toppings. Um, so of the more traditional uh, palette of permissible pizza toppings, I would say mushroom. I just love, I just love all mushrooms. I actually think I would enjoy eating dissolving newspapers and fermenting leaves and the ripe pods of, 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 of fungi <laughs> that are served to the cricket. I think I would actually really like cricket food. Um, my brother gathers lots of mushrooms in the forest and my dad um, dries and pickles them. And then when I, I go to visit, I get to eat all of the dried and pickled mushrooms and I will eat all of the mushrooms off of any pizza for all of time. Um, so definitely, yeah, definitely mushroom. Um, and what about you? What about your pizza topping? Oh, um, gosh, like a Costco combo pizza, <laughs> like, which is like, like everything, they just throw everything on it. I think it's, um, and it's like mushroom and bell pepper and, um, sausage and pepperoni and, and everything. I think everything in the bag, they just throw it on top. Oh, and sorry. And my last one was, yeah, yeah. The, the next thing you're most excited about. That's either coming out or that you're working on. Yeah. Um, so I've been working on a lot of romance, um, but I also, and I don't know where it's going or what will become of it exactly, but I also have this, this project um, that in, is, is the, the, the character is, um, is part shark. She's, um, she's the, the, she's the daughter of, um, Maldoror from Latremont's Maldoror and um the shark he couples with in the briny abyss it's 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 in the the chance of Maldoror the scene where he there's a shipwreck and he's watching it from the cliff and he sees a shark eating the survivors as they flounder in the surf and then he swims out from shore and then um and then they have this um yeah this bloody glaucous sensual lethargic frantic contradictory <laughs> brief rapid you know uh carnal encounter and um anyway and i i don't know i've just been imagining um the shark offspring of that coupling and um latremont um isidore duquez the um that was latremont was his pen name um he was born in um in Uruguay and I have friends in Uruguay and I've spent a little time in Montevideo. And so I've kind of imagined where he watched that shipwreck and um, have wanted to write a story about that part shark person. And I'm also part shark because I had a, um, a BMX bike rack and had to have my face reconstructed um, with shark parts. Um, you know, they're, they're cartilaginous creatures. So I have the shark cartilage inside myself, which is maybe my link to thinking about this part shark creature um but anyway <laughs> whatever th whatever that will be if it if it will be um i'm excited about it and yet you know it's just kind of in like a little uh whirlpool in the in the ocean um which i guess we're we're by right we're in the ferns by the ocean right now so maybe when i <laughs> when i part ways with you i'll actually walk toward the 
the beach through the ferns and I'll stare out at the ocean and I can contemplate that um, that tale and see if I can sight any of the the sharks of the deep. Uh, well, Janet, it's been it's been so lovely sitting here sitting here with you in the yeah in the clearing. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, thank you for for talking. Thanks to Keek Araki Kawaguchi and Joanna Rocco for joining us this week. Fiction Transmission is made by FC2 with generous support from the Jarvis and Constance Doctorow Family Foundation. This episode was produced by Brian Kahn, engineered by Joelle Thibodeau, and read by me, Madeline Lambert. You can find FC2 online at fc2.org, on Twitter at FCTWO, and on Instagram at Fiction Collective 2.